Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. It is the fifth book of the Bible and the fifth and final book in what is known as the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The word Deuteronomy comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Deuteronomion, which means second law giving, which I will explain in a moment. But let's uh, bring ourselves up to speed as to where we are in the history of Israel and in the history of the kingdom of God. After God gave his law on Mount Sinai to the Israelites and established them as a nation there, entering into covenant with them, they were ready to go up into the land of promise the, to fulfill the additional promise given to Abraham that God would not only make him a great nation, but would give that nation a land. But as you know, because of their rebellious unbelief, they refused to enter the land. Uh, the ten spies came back and reported that, indeed, it is a goodly land. It is as God promised, flowing with milk and honey. But there are giants in the land, and the cities are, are fortified. And the people got all worked up in fear, and they refused to believe God and to enter the land. And so God judged them and caused that generation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that entire generation of unbelieving Jews died off. Now, after those 40 years, with the, the next generation is poised to enter the land. And that's where we are in Deuteronomy. And Moses is going to give them the law a second time. That's where we get Deuteronomy. Deutero, second, the Greek word for nomos is law. And so it's a second law giving. He's going to uh, enter into covenant again with them and repeat much of the law. But as one Old Testament scholar notes, the book is not just a rote rehearsal of the law and commands that God wants his people to follow. Rather, this man says, much of this summary is couched in homiletical or sermonic terms. That is, Moses is not simply explaining what the laws of God are, but he is earnestly enjoining them upon the consciences of his people and urging them to take with utmost seriousness, God's call to a holy life. In other words, he's not just rehearsing the law in a rote manner. He's urgent. He's passionate. He's preaching to them. He's pleading with his people to follow these things. Now, how, the 34-chapter book, how should we summarize it? Something I commend to at least some of you as a, as a practice that I find fun is to take a book of the Bible or a literary unit and cull out the themes of that book, often found by repeated words and phrases, and then weave those various themes into a thematic or summary statement. I find that fun, challenging, and I have one here. But don't worry, we're going to unpack it, okay, because it's an earful. But as I studied the book of De Deuteronomy and tried to note the themes that were emerging, I came up with this grand summary statement. As Moses reviews Israel's history and, re and prepares his people to enter the promised land, he gives them motivations for their allegiance to the Lord. Those motivations are the unique kingship of the Lord, the sovereign grace of the Lord in choosing and delivering Israel in the past, and the certain promises of the Lord, of the Lord's blessing in the future. He also gives them exhortations to steadfastly avoid all idolatry, to joyfully reflect, love, fear, serve, worship, and obey the Lord with all their heart and with joy, and teach them to their children, and to believe and act on the promises without fear. 
He also gives predictions of the inevitable rebellion of Israel and its eventual restoration. Now, you got that? Okay, let's take some time and unpack it. First, let's look at the motivations for Israel's allegiance to the Lord. I find that the book of Deuteronomy gives motivations for Israel to be devoted to Yahweh. And the first one is this, who the Lord is, that he is the only true God. And so we read, and I'll be touching down at certain points, in Deuteronomy 4.35, we read, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. In chapter 5, verse 6, I am the Lord your God. In chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In chapter 32 and verse 39, he says, There is no God besides me. And over and over again, God repeats that he is a jealous God. In chapter 5 and verse 9, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, etc. In chapter 6 and verse 15, he reminds them again, with these words, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you if you turn to idols. And so the first motivation for Israel to be devoted to the Lord is because he is the only God that there is. Maybe you knew this. I didn't know this until last week. But the second largest Hindu temple in the world is in a little town in New Jersey. How many of you knew that? Yeah, I, I just read recently, heard on a podcast, that the second largest Hindu temple next to Angkor Wat, which is in Cambodia, which I knew from uh, working with Cambodian refugees years ago, it's, it's the second largest Hindu temple in the world. It's roughly 180 acres. It is able to swallow MetLife Stadium, where the New York Giants and Jets play, almost four times. And there are 10,000 statues in this temple, right over here in, what's the name, Robbinsville Township, a little um, east of the capital of Trenton. And I understand that Hindus have upwards of 10,000 gods. Imagine trying to sort that all out and figure out what does God require of me? Remember Paul in Athens when he walked down the street and he saw all these idols and then there was one to an unknown God just in case they missed one. They had an idol for an unknown God. And when he addresses the Athenians, he says, the God you worship in ignorance, that's the God I proclaim to you. He's the living and true God. And so why should Israel... Be devoted to the Lord because he is the only God there is. And he's jealous to be known as the only living and true God. There is no God besides me. That's the first motivation. There's a second motivation. Why should Israel cling to the Lord, be devoted to the Lord? Secondly, because of what the Lord has done for them in the past. Because he has chosen them and delivered them by mighty deliverances. In Deuteronomy 7, we read of the election of Israel in these words. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you. Why did God choose Israel? For nothing in them. 
we might answer it, he loved them because he loved them because he loved them ad infinitum, but you will search in vain for anything that drew out God's love toward Israel. It was sovereign grace. A.W. Pink says, the Chaldeans were more ancient than the Israelites. The Egyptians were far wiser. The Canaanites were more numerous, yet they were passed by. God chose Israel for no good in themselves. That's a reason they should be devoted to him. His sovereign grace in making them his special people, giving them his law, giving them to have an intimate relationship with him that no other nation was to have. But not only that, but his mighty deliverances of them were a reason to be devoted to him. In chapter 7, well, yeah, chapter 7. No, I read that already. Because of what has God has done in delivering them out of Egypt, one of the words that is repeated over and over again is the word remember. And Egypt, or the Egyptians, are mentioned 50 times. Listen to some of the reminders God is giving to the Israelites through Moses. Chapter 5, verse 15, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Chapter 7, 7 and 19, remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh. Chapter 8, verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. Chapter 11 and verse 4, and what he did to Egypt's army, to the, its horses and its chariots when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them. Chapter 15, verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Chapter 16, verse 3, so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Chapter 29, 2 and 3, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh. Chapter 32, verse 7, in the Song of Moses, remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Why should they be devoted to the Lord? Not only because God has sovereignly chosen them, because they need to remember that with a mighty hand, he brought them out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt into freedom. But not only that, but they are reminded that time and time again, when they rebelled against him, God was merciful to them. Didn't we read that in the book of Numbers? Over and over again, they grumble, they complain, they rebel. And if it weren't for the intercessory prayers of Moses, God would have destroyed them time and time again. And yet God was merciful. That's something else God wants them to be aware of. And so in chapter 9, verse 6, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. And then he says in verse 16, and I saw that you indeed had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. In verse 19, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me this time also. And he rehearses how they had rebelled again and again. And he had interceded again and again. And in God's mercy, they were spared. And so why are they to be devoted to the Lord? Not only because he is the only living and true God, 
but because of what he has done for them in the past. He has chosen them in sovereign grace to be his special people, his treasured people. He delivered them from, with a mighty hand out of Egypt. And time and again, he spared them in mercy when they deserved to be destroyed. But here's a third motivation as to why Israel was to be devoted to the Lord, not only for who he is, not only for what he has done in the past, but for what he promises to do in the future. Listen to these phrases, and I repeat them because you need to see that this is a repeated theme. If I just said it once, you wouldn't get that. This is a repeated theme. Chapter 1, eight, verse 8. Possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Chapter 5, three occasions. That it may go well with you on the land. That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Chapter 6, verse 3 that it may be well with you. Chapter 6, verse 18, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land. Chapter 8, verse 1, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give you. Chapter 12, two times, 25 and 28, so that it may be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 13, that it may go well with you. Chapter 22, verse 7, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Chapter 26, 28, verse 18, the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you and that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations he has made for praise, fame, and honor. Chapter 27, verse 3, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You can't miss the refrains, right? That it may be well with you, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply, that you may prolong your days in the good land which I am giving you. And then in chapter 28, we have the blessings and the curses that are given to them. And listen to some of the blessings. If Israel will but obey the Lord, this is how they will be blessed. God will bless the offspring of their body. He will bless the produce of their land, the offspring of their beasts and herd and flock. They will be blessed in their basket and in their kneading bowl. Their enemies will be defeated and made to flee. The peoples of the earth will be afraid of them. He will give them rain in due season. He will bless the work of their hand they will lend but not borrow. They will be the head and not the tail. Do you see why Israel is obliged to be devoted to the Lord? Because of who he is. He is the only living and true God. Because of what he's already done for you. He's chosen you. He's redeemed you out of Egypt. And he continues to show you mercy. And because of what he has promised to do. He has goodwill for you. He wants you to prosper. He wants it to go well for you. Well, these are the motivations to Israel. But the motivations undergird the exhortations. They are the foundation to Israel's responsibilities. But with these motivations in view, what are the responsibilities that are given to Israel? And you'll find that the exhortations are founded upon the motivations. And so here they are. Their first exhortation is to steadfastly avoid all forms of idolatry. 
If there is only one true God, and he is their God, Yahweh, and he's jealous to be known as the one true God, then Israel's responsibility is to steadfastly avoid all forms of allegiance to any other God. They must be diligent and vigilant to avoid idolatry. And so we read things like this, chapter 7, beginning at verse 2. And when the Lord your God delivers them, the Canaanite nations before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall... Do to them, you shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. Chapter 7, verse 25, the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. In chapter 11, verse 16, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Chapter 12, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. Chapter 12, 30 and 31, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And in chapter 13, he says, if anyone tries to turn you away from the true God and get you to serve other gods, even if he is your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, the wife that you love, they are to be killed and you're to be the first one to put them to death. If they try to turn you away from the living God. Idolatry was a huge danger and a huge threat to the Israelites as they conquered these pagan Canaanite nations. And so they are exhorted to steadfastly avoid all forms of idolatry. But secondly, they are to reflect, love, fear, serve, worship, and obey the Lord with all their heart and with joy. If God has done all that he has done for them, chosen them to be his special people, delivered them with a mighty hand out of Egypt, delivered them time and again from the destruction they deserved. What do they owe him? All of these things. First, to reflect him. 7.6 says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Remember how we saw in Leviticus that because God is holy, they need to be holy. They need to reflect him. They need to be like him. They're to love him. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They are to fear him. 10.12, now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and love him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Note that for the believer, the fear of God is not to be a dread fear. But the fear of God goes with the love of God. For the believer, the, the fear of God is to be a reverence and an awe, but not a dread fear. They are to serve him with all their heart. They are to worship him. Chapter 6, 13, you shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. They were to obey him. Walk in his ways. And the word command or commanded 
shows up 64 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And they're to do that with all their heart. Did you hear that? With all their heart. Some people think that Old Testament obedience was just to be outward and perfunctory, but that's not the case. They were all true religion in, in every age is, is to be heart religion, and they were to worship God with all of their heart. Not only that, the note of joy is to characterize their worship. It is repeated again and again. I'll give you some samples. In chapter 12 and verse 7, there also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Chapter 12, verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Chapter 12, verse 18, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose you and your daughter, da, 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 da. and it says, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. And just one more sample in chapter 14 and verse 26. He says, you, um, you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Joy was to characterize their worship. It wasn't to be perfunctory and external. It was to be with all their heart and it was to be with joy. And so these are the commands. These are the exhortations given. Because God is the only God, they are to avoid idolatry. Because of all that God has done for them, they are to love him and serve him and worship him and obey him. And, and of course, because it is the second giving of the law, there are a lot of commands. And I'm not going to rehearse all of them, but, but there, there's a lot of repetition of the law in Deuteronomy. It's the second law. And so in chapter 5, there's a repetition of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20. In chapter 12, there are laws about offerings. Chapter 13, how to deal with idolaters and those who would lead you away from the Lord. Chapter 14 has to do with clean and unclean animals. Chapter 15 talks about the sabbatic year. Every seventh year, you know, the land was to rest, debts were to be remitted. Uh, chapter 16, the three annual feasts that all the males of Israel were to attend. Chapter 17 has much to say about justice in the land. You're not to convict someone except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It talks about when you have a king. God apparently was not opposed to Israel having a king, but the king had to have a copy of the law. He had to read it every year, and he had to fear the Lord because Yahweh was going to be the supreme king in Israel, even if they had an earthly king. Chapter 18 talks about caring for the Levites. Chapter 19, they set up cities of refuge where if someone commits an unintentional sin or a murder, we would call manslaughter, he could flee to the city of refuge and find safety. In chapter 20, laws about warfare, laws about destroying their enemies, the principle of harem where everything was to be destroyed. Um, chapter 24, laws about divorce. Chapters 27, 28, curses and blessings. Those are a lot of commands that they were to obey. But why? Not legalistically, but because of what God has done for them. Their obedience was to follow the grace and mercy of God toward them. And then a third exhortation was to believe and act on God's promises without fear. And again, remember the, the exhortations are based on the motivations. There's one God, so stay away from idolatry. God has done all these things for you, so you need to serve him and worship him and love him. And remember the previous generation that refused to go into the land? They did not believe God and act on his promise. You need to do differently. 
Now, after 40 years, you're poised to enter the land. Don't be like your forefathers. But you need to believe God and act on what he has promised. He has said in chapter 1, verse 8, Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers. And here's a more extended exhortation to them as to what they were to do. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 16. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? See, that's what the previous generation said, right? The cities are fortified. They're giants. We can't do this. And he's saying now to this new generation, if you say, you know, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And so... They are to believe God and act on that belief. So do you see where the exhortations are based on, on the motivations? There's only one God. And so you better worship him alone and eschew idolatry. Look at all that God has done for you in the past. His great mercy in choosing you and delivering you. As a result of that, you need to love him and fear him and worship him and walk in his ways, obey him. And look at what God has promised you. He's promised this land. He's promised to be with you. He's promised like he destroyed Pharaoh. He's going to take care of those Canaanite nations. Now you need to believe him and act on that belief and go in and take the land. And so we have in Deuteronomy motivations. We have exhortations. And then there are also predictions concerning Israel. And one of the predictions is the inevitable rebellion and failure of Israel. And this is rather astounding. It's one of the proofs that the Bible is the word of God. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future because he has ordained it. And in chapter 28, there are both blessings and curses. Uh, six leaders from six of the tribes were to get up on Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings, and six leaders of the other six tribes were to get on Mount Ebal and kind of in an antiphonal way, announce the curses. We've rehearsed the blessings. If you obey me, I will bless you in all these ways. But it's interesting that the blessings occupy 14 verses in chapter 28. The curses occupy more than 50. And listen to the curses that are threatened to Israel if they do not obey the Lord. They're horrible. You'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the country, cursed in your body, cursed in the produce of your ground. Your herd will be cursed. There will be confusion and rebuke in all that you do. There will be fever and inflammation, the sword, blight, mildew. The heaven above will be bronze and the earth will be iron. In other words, there won't be any rain and the ground will be like dust. 
You will be defeated before your enemies. There will be terror. We're gonna, I'm going to put boils upon you like I did with the Egyptians. There will be tumors and scab and itch beyond healing. There will be madness and blindness. You will build houses and not live in them. You will plant vineyards and not eat the fruit. Foreigners will eat the produce of your land. You will be taken captive to a foreign nation. You will serve other gods of wood and stone. And perhaps the worst, in chapter 28, verse 53, then you shall eat the offspring of your body, your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. You say, when did that ever happen? When we studied Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that's exactly what happened in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Why? Why will these things come upon them? Chapter 28, verse 47 says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and glad heart for the abundance of all things. What a horrible prospect are these curses. But what a faithful warning for God to give the Israelites that if you disobey me, these horrible things will come upon you. But here's the reality. Despite the promises of blessing. And despite the threat of these horrible curses that Moses predicts, he is told that these curses will indeed come upon them because he predicts that Israel will indeed rebel and fail. In chapter 29, the covenant is renewed with Israel. And as I read at the outset of our worship service, we're told in chapter 29, 2 to 4, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And then, as Moses is being prepared to die and commission Joshua, listen to these words, predicting the failure and rebellion of Israel. Chapter 31, beginning at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to die, or rather lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land, into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Let me see how much I want to read here. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will utter, surely hide my face in that day because of all the evils they will do, for they will turn to other gods. It's an amazing that despite the promise of blessing, despite the warnings of these horrific curses, Moses predicts under the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit that Israel will indeed rebel and forsake the Lord. And then God gives Moses a song. Chapter 32 is the song of Moses. 
And as the theologian Thomas Schreiner says, this song is a witness against Israel because in that song of Moses, he rehearses the signal mercies that God has given to Israel, but also a prediction of Israel's apostasy. He uses phrases like this, they forsook God, scorned the rock of his salvation, made him jealous with strange gods, sacrificed to demons, forgot the God who gave them birth, and then the way of God will bring the curses upon them. So he predicts their eventual failure. But good news, that's not the final word. Because he also predicts the eventual restoration of Israel. In that song of Moses in which he pronounces that they're going to rebel, the curses are going to come upon them, there are also these notes of hope and restoration. 32:36. for the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Likewise, in verse 39, he says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. Yes, he will wound, but he will also heal. And in verse 43, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Israel will fail. Israel will be judged. Israel will experience those horrific curses. But that's not the end. There's hope for the future. And that hope is expressed in chapter 30. Verses 1 to 6. He says, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you because they're going to go into captivity, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. You see, Things are going to go bad for you, Israel. You're going to rebel. You're going to experience the curses. You're going to be taken into captivity. But the promise here is that God's going to restore them from captivity. But listen to verse 6. I read it earlier. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, all your soul so that you may live. You see, God did bring Israel back into the land, but there's no time in Israel's history, even after the restoration, when it can be said that the mass of Israelites had their hearts circumcised and were an obedient, submissive people to the Lord. That's why theologians believe that this promise of a circumcised heart is looking to the far future and the new covenant age which will be ushered in by Jesus Christ. When, as it says in Jeremiah 31, a new covenant I will make with the house of Israel, where they will all know me, and where I'll write my law upon their hearts, and their sins will be forgiven, and you won't say, know the Lord, but you'll, they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. 
And in Ezekiel chapter 36, this is the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the circumcised heart in Leviticus 20, 36, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The only time that has been fulfilled is when Jesus Christ came and ushered in the new covenant. Is there any other reference to the coming of Jesus and the coming of a new covenant age? Yes, there is, as we get near to close. In Deuteronomy 18, God says this to Moses. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses, the Lord someday is going to raise up a prophet like you, and people will need to listen to him. Who was that prophet? Listen to Acts chapter 3. In one of Peter's sermons, he's saying to his fellow Israelites, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. Who was that prophet that would be raised up like Moses? According to Peter, it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to how the book of Deuteronomy ends. It ends with these words. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Since that time, there's been no prophet like Moses. Moses was a great man. He is the great Old Testament agent of salvation. I mean, you read the books of the Pentateuch. Everything is commanded through Moses, Moses, Moses. Do according to the Lord's command through Moses, Moses, Moses. Moses is the one working those miracles by the power of God. Moses was a great man, a great servant of God, mightily used of God. And there would be no prophet like him until in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the seed of the woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, one greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Jesus is in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, before we close, I do want to bring it home to us as new covenant believers. This is Old Testament, Old Covenant, a covenant made with a people that they broke. They broke the covenant. But what does God say 
in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, not like the covenant I made, which they broke. There's a great difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was breakable. The new covenant is unbreakable. And let me reiterate that little poem by Ernie Reisinger. Run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Isn't that beautiful? The law could not give the power to obey. Under the new covenant, we're not only given the, the law of God, the word of God, we're given the power by the indwelling spirit to, to walk in his statutes and to obey him. He's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Great difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. You can't break the new covenant. But I want to draw some parallels in closing because there are some parallels between what we saw Moses tell Israel and what the Lord tells us. And let me close with those parallels. What were the motivations for Israel to be devoted to God? One was because he's the only living and true God. Isn't that our motivation as well? Aren't you thankful you don't have to navigate among 10,000 gods and figure out what does he require of me? Remember the interchange that Peter had with Jesus when a large number of Jesus' disciples walked no longer with him in John 6. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, will you also go away? Remember Peter's words? He got it right that time. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We have the same motivation to worship God because he's the only God. He's the only living and true God, the God of the Bible. Was Israel to be motivated by all that God had done for them in choosing them, in delivering them from Egypt, in showing them mercy time and again in the face of their sins? Well, isn't that our motivation? What has God done for you? Christian, he's chosen you. And I don't need to tell you it's not because of anything he saw in you, right? He loved you because he loved you because he loved you because he loved you ad infinitum. There's nothing in you that drew forth his love or me. Sovereign grace has saved you. And he's delivered you out of a greater slavery than Egypt. He's delivered you from the bondage of sin. Yeah, you still sin, but you're not a, a slave to sin anymore. You can conquer it and rise above it. He's delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's delivered you from that society called the world, people who don't know God and are slated for hell. And he's translated you into his kingdom and the church, the community destined for heaven. And what has he promised? Were they motivated by what God had promised? I want to do you good, that it may be well with you in the land. I want to give you a goodly land flowing with milk and honey. That should have motivated the Israelites well, he's made promises to us, and that should motivate us. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may, you may be also. And I love some of the favorite, my favorite words of Jesus. If it were not so, I would have told you. I love those words. I share, I've shared them with people at their, on their deathbed because there's words I want to hear. I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. What a promise. What a promise to sufferers. Romans 8, 18, all the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in you. 
What a promise is Romans 8, 28. Though, whether we see it in this life or not, that all things are working together for good to those who love God. Shouldn't that motivate us as well? Not only what God has done, but what God has promised to do. And the exhortations to Israel, are they not the same to us? Because he is the only living and true God. Are we not to forsake all others as we sang, all idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. John ends his first epistle. Stay away from idols. That's for us as Christians. Anything we love, trust, and obey more than God is an idol. doesn't have to be made of wood and stone. So we have the same exhortation. And because of what he has promised us, we are to believe him and cling to him in hope that the one who has never lied to us has not lied in what he has promised. He's told us that the Holy Spirit is given. You know what the Holy Spirit is? He's a, he's a down payment. Men make down payments and they renege. Uh, ran out of money or they're just dishonest. God gives you a down payment. He's good on the rest. And the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. And the full inheritance is a redeemed body. If the Spirit of God is in you now, one day you're going to walk around on a new earth and a new body. He's the guarantee of that. And we need to believe him and act on that. Now, God made predictions through Moses for Israel. It wasn't good. They're going to fail. They're going to turn away from me. They're going to go into captivity. What about his predictions for us? The new covenant people of God, I can tell you, they're all good. You know how that's kind of become one of those faddish little phrases? It's all good. It's all good, man. Maybe it's even fading out now. And you listen to it, and you say, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But people get into these little fads. You know, don't get into little fads. They, they come and go, right? A few years ago, people used to make an affirmation and then say, not. Remember that? And that faded out, where people used to diss people. We have these little verbal fads that come and go, you know. Now, for some of you who read the Puritans, be careful that you don't talk like a Puritan. You read too, so much of Puritans, you end talking like a Puritan. But, but don't try to be faddish in your language. But uh, people say, yeah, it's all good. But in this case, it's all good. <laughs> it really is. For you, the Christian, it's all good. Why? You will never finally and fully fall away. Why? Because 1 Peter 1.5 says you're kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You need to believe to the end, but the power of God will sustain your faith until the end. And why will it all be good for you? Because Paul says in Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all good for us. Final word. If you're an unbeliever, isn't it astounding that Israel can receive the promises of all those blessings and the threats of all those horrific curses and yet thumb their nose and disobey God and invite those curses? Such is the blindness of the unbelieving heart. If you're not a believer in Jesus, don't be like the Israelites. 
In Jesus' name, I promise you the blessings of the gospel, full forgiveness of all of your sins, an abundant life of freedom from the bondage to sin, and a destiny beyond your imagination with God. That's the promise. But in Jesus' name, I also threaten you with the reality of eternal hell, which is described as weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and perpetual torment of body and soul. Please don't be like the Israelites. Choose life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your ways, your person, and how they relate to us. Thank you for what you've done for us in choosing us and blessing us with every spiritual blessing and in promising us blessings we cannot even imagine. Help us to live in light of them. In Jesus' name, amen.